our New Testament reading then is from the Gospel according to Luke in the 10th chapter, beginning verse 25 and continuing through verse 28. I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy in the 30th chapter, beginning at verse 11 and continuing through verse 20. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Surely this commandment that I am commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us that we may hear it and observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it? No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways and observing His commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today, you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying Him and holding fast to Him. For that means life to you and length of days so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give your ancestors to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. See, the word of the Lord proclaims, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, the Lord your God has commanded you today, loving the Lord your God, walking in His ways, observing His commandments, decrees, and ordinances. 
Then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. These are the words of the Lord that were spoken to the children of Israel. As the Hebrews were in Moab, having traveled throughout the wilderness of Sinai on their way from captivity in Egypt to final freedom in Canaan land, they came to this place, to the east of the Jordan River Valley, roughly opposite Jericho. And it was in this place that the Lord their God came to remind them of the covenant that he had cut with them shortly after the start of their long and arduous journey. It was comprised of choices and consequences. If the Israelites were faithful to obey his commands, his decrees, and his ordinances, then they would receive the benefits associated with a divine blessing. If they chose to be disobedient, however, the ramifications of a divine curse were also outlined. And the choice was theirs. This is a common theme throughout the writings of the Old Testament. The people of God had been chosen by Him, not of their own accord, and certainly not on account of any merit that they had demonstrated. But they were chosen nonetheless, and while chosen, they were allowed to retain a free will. They were instructed. They were encouraged in the way that they should go, but God never cajoled them into it. Here again, the choices and the consequences of those choices are plainly laid out for them. I would submit to you today, church, that we find ourselves in a similar circumstance right here, right now. The new covenant is now in effect, that which was sealed in the blood of our blessed Savior, and we have been grafted in among the chosen people of the Most High God. This certainly is very, very good news indeed. But Jesus said that he came to fulfill and not abolish the previous covenant that his Father had established with his people. The way I understand this teaching is that we continue to have the solemn responsibility of a free will. We can choose to follow God's instructions for his people through the law, the prophets, and the incarnation, the life and the witness of Jesus. Should we decide to go this way, the way of Christ, we are assured of where our journey will take us. Should we decide not to go the way of Christ, we are warned that we will have no one but ourselves to blame for what happens. That is some pretty sobering stuff, I know. Now, it is possible to read these warnings in Scripture and envision a wrathful God who violently punishes his creatures that rebel. But it is also possible to read these warnings in Scripture and envision a loving God who wants us to want what he knows is best for us. Since many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, let me use the example of a fish. God has fashioned hundreds of thousands upon millions of creatures in the air and on the earth and in the seas. Each one of them is unique, and even scientists are left to marvel and wonder 
at their complexity and the particular adaptations they have been equipped with for the environment in which they live and move and have their being. The fish was designed so that when mature, it would live in the water. Some of them in fresh water, some of them in salt water, some in brackish water. The fish would, when mature, exist on a diet of marine vegetation. Some larger ones would also supplement their diet with smaller fish or insects or shellfish or maddeningly, maddeningly, our crabs. But supposing a fish decided one day that they no longer wanted to live after the manner of a fish, and they exercised their free will, their independence, by leaving the water for dry land and a diet of, oh, let's say, dairy products and chocolate. Well, needless to say, even if it sounded like a good idea, to the fish, it would not turn out very well for the fish. That's because this is not the way the fish was designed by its maker. God is not punishing the fish for its wanton disregard for his plan for it, but the fish is failing to prosper on account of its own disobedience. And that is, I think, Precisely what this warning to the Israelites here in Deuteronomy and elsewhere to the people of God in Scripture is about. It is, I have to admit, very good to be back here in your midst this Sunday morning after having been away last week as my family drove to New England for a relative's wedding. Well, my father was a native of New Hampshire. He never offered to take me back to his hometown. And I had reason to be in that state only once ever before. And that was also for a relative's wedding. The same relative, actually. May this one turn out better for her. We stayed in the nearby city of Concord, which happens to be, you may recall from your high school geography lessons, the state capital of New Hampshire. From our hotel room there Saturday night, I set about doing some sleuthing to locate a nearby church that offered an early worship service that would allow me to get back to our room, grab a bite to eat, and then get on the road again to travel the last 30 miles or so to the home of the happy couple before their backyard ceremony got underway. Easier said than done, as it turns out. To start with, the first thing I discovered was that in this, a city of just under 45,000 people, the political hub of the state, there is not a single Presbyterian church still open. Not one. And when I say Presbyterian, I I don't mean PCUSA exclusively, I mean any Presbyterian, no EPC, no ECOP, no PCA, no AAPC, no any other stripe of Presbyterian alphabet soup at all. None. Now, it is true that there once was, hundreds of years ago, 
uh, at least an informal agreement between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists that neither side would actively plant churches in the other's sphere of influence. However, those days are long since gone now, and that understanding was relegated to the dustbin of ecclesiastical history. There have been Presbyterian churches throughout the Northeast for many generations, but the ground has been shifting, and a Presbyterian presence is again becoming rarer. We can wring our hands and blame many an outside factor for this trend, but if I'm being honest, I have to admit that ultimately we, the Presbyterians ourselves, have only us to thank for the current state of affairs, both in the Northeast and in the Northwest, the Midwest, the West, the Mid-Atlantic, and the South, for that matter, as well. And I think it goes back to the words of God. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing his commandments, decrees, and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. You see, we have not been very faithful at fulfilling the expressed desire of God for his people. On the whole, we have gotten bored, lazy, distracted, disenchanted, enlightened, you name it. But by and large, we have not gotten obedient. And we are reaping the harvest of that disobedience. I've heard many a well-meaning clergy person wringing their hands and wondering aloud, how are we going to revitalize, reinvigorate, renew, and rebuild the church? Many programs are on offer from a variety of consultants that advise us to reinvent ourselves as this or that or the other because these are just the sorts of things that their market research has told them that the people want. And this is how we regain our relevance and, by extension, our numbers. But I'm going to dissent, which is something that by now should not surprise most of you. As I see it, the root problem is not so much that the world around us has changed, though it most certainly has. The root of the problem is that we, church, we have changed somewhere along the line. We went from being a body which loved and served the Lord with all our mind, soul, heart, and strength to an organization whose members began asking themselves, what can the church do for me? How can she meet my needs? What do our neighbors want from us? But those are not the sorts of things that God was proposing to his covenant partners, either in the wilderness on the way to Canaan, nor as he sat with his disciples around the Passover meal in the upper room. Remember my words, obey my commands, teach and preach and heal and love the other. I made you to live and to give in these ways. This is how we respond obediently and in accord with our maker and the author of creation. If, 
what I suggest is partly true, that the church and her people have over time more and more chosen to go our own way, our hearts turning away as we do not hear, being led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them rather than to follow the Lord and the head of the church, the word which is very near to us, that which is in our mouth and in our hearts for us to observe. If that is the case, then we should really not be all that surprised at the state of the church. Further, if this is the way things are, no consultants, no national or regional or local denominational officials can wave their magic wands and make the church or the world, for that matter, suddenly better. We are going to have to do the hard work ourselves. We are going to have to confess, repent, and pray for revival. We are going to have to turn back to the rules for a blessed life which God still yearns for us to live. No one can do this for us, but no one can stop us from doing this. Thousands of years later, the rules of the game of life remain remarkably constant. And that's actually the best news in this rather sobering assessment of the state of the church. Because God is not capricious and doesn't go back on his almighty word, the covenant he has made with his people remain in full effect. Therefore, the promise of blessing still remains. Even now, the divine offer is there on the table. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying Him, holding fast to Him, for that means life to you and length of days. And not only will it go well for those who dwell in the land of Canaan, but for all those whom God has grafted in to the people of Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, for always leaving that door open for the prodigals, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.